open our Bibles tonight to Romans chapter 4, and we're going to continue in this particular part of our study on faith. While you're turning there, I'm going to read a scripture to you that just came to me. This is why faith is so, one of the reasons faith is so important. You can turn to Romans, Romans chapter 4, is that where I told you? Good. Well, I was right. Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians, don't turn there, but I'm just going to read this to you. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 4 says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Jesus told his disciples that they didn't need to be anxious because he had overcome the world. So Jesus has already overcome the world. That word world means the world system, the world's way of doing things, the devices of the enemy. All of the schemes that are designed to destroy you have already been overcome by our Lord and Savior. But we appropriate that victory through the exercise of our faith. And that's what 1 John verse, chapter 5, verse 4 says. And this is the victory that overcomes the world even our faith. So it's our faith that appropriates, that receives his victory, and he's already gone forward and defeated your enemy. He's already gone forward and made a way so that the world system and all the devices of the world that are designed to destroy you do not have to destroy you, but it requires your exercise of your faith to receive and appropriate his victory for you. And that's why we've been learning, to, we've talked about what faith is, what faith isn't. We've talked about all kinds of avenues of looking at faith. And over the last few weeks, we've begun to look at these scriptures in Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Because in them, I believe, are the essential elements of faith. And the reason we're looking at the essential elements of faith, it's not a formula so that if you do these six things or whatever number it is, I don't even think I even numbered them. If you do this, the, the, these things, that doesn't, you don't automatically get a new Cadillac. As nice as that be, God's not, a, God's not a vending machine. If you put the right change in in the right order, you get out what you see in the window. No, God is a living God. He is a creative God. He loves you, and He's made all kinds of promises to you. Faith is for the purpose of receiving something that God's already provided for us, and we've talked about that before. But now what we've begun to look at is there's situations where, where we run into, and this is how life goes. You can sit in church on Wednesday night or Sunday morning or whatever else you may be studying faith, and you say, that's great, I've taken good notes, I now understand that. But the only way that becomes real to you is when you apply it in your life. And what often happens is we've got these principles, we've got these ideas and understandings, and they're all kind of running around in our head, and then we run up against a real-life situation and say, well, how do I, what do I do? How do I do this? And so what we're doing is we're going through what I'm calling the basic elements of faith, and it's kind of like a checklist. And we've talked about this before. When a pilot gets in the plane to fly it, even if he's flown it for 10,000 hours, uh, he's still going to pull out a checklist. He could have built the plane. He's going to pull out a checklist, and he's going to go through this checklist because as many times as he's flown that plane, he doesn't want to rely on his memory or his own understanding, but he wants to make sure he's covered everything, like making sure there's fuel in the tank, little things like that, you know. And, and so he wants to make sure all those essential things are done because the safety of that plane depends on that. 
We've also looked at another example. I've used it, you know, I, some, maybe some of the other coffee shops do this, but I asked one time uh, uh, one of the, the people at Starbucks, how do you keep these orders straight? Because, again, I just order black coffee, but my wife and I've stood in line with other people have, you know, 14 different combinations of things. And how do you keep that straight? And they said, because no matter what order you tell it in, to us, we have learned a specific order in our mind to go through and check off what to do and not do. So that's why they can come to the end of a complicated order, not write it all down and keep it straight and get your order straight because they've got a system, they've got a checklist by which they go through each order. And that's what this is like. So this is a way to take the, the spaghetti-like experience of the challenges of our life and sometimes our understanding and put it together in some kind of order so that you make sure that the basic elements that the Bible's talking about are there, that you really are in faith. And so we're going to read through the Scripture, and then we're going to just quickly name the ones we've already covered because I want to get into a new one for tonight. Romans chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 17. Of course, this is about Abraham. We're going to go back and talk. We've talked about the background of this before, but I'll, and we'll talk about it again in light of this discussion tonight. We're going to start in verse 17. As it is written, this is God speaking, I have made you, talking to Abraham, Notice the tense there. It's not, I will make you. I'm hoping to make you someday. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. And this was a time in Abraham's life when he had no children. When that promise was made to him the first time, he was 75 years old. His wife was 65. She was barren. She could not have children. And they were both past the childbearing age. And God comes to them and says, I'm making a promise to you that you're going to be the father of many nations. Well, to be the father of many nations, he's got to start with something he doesn't have already, and that's one child. And so that promise that you'd be the father of many nations already had included in it that what Abraham wanted more than anything else he was going to get, and God was going to give it to him by way of a promise. We've talked about the fact before that, that Abraham, because this promise wasn't fulfilled in nine months from the time God made the promise. In fact, it took 25 years. But if you go through and study the story, you'll find out it took 24 years and three months for Abraham to get in faith. Oh, the first thing he does when God makes his promise is when there's a threat, he goes down to Egypt, takes his wife down there, and tries to peddle her as a sister. In other words, he sells his wife to the king to save his own hide. That's where his level of faith was. There was another time when God came to him and repeated the promise, and Abraham excused himself, went into the other room and laughed. He says it fell in his face laughing. Can God, can anybody produce a child in an old man? And there were other times when he did similar things like that. Now, we're going to go on and see what God's testimony in the New Testament was about his faith. But if you go through and read the Old Testament story, you'll see... He didn't get it right away. And I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. And when he didn't get it right away, God didn't pull the promise back and say, well, I'm going to give it to somebody else. God was patient with him. So at this point, God makes a promise to him. One of the things Abraham did along the way is uh, when, when things weren't happening fast enough for him, he and his wife got together to figure out a way to help God. Did you ever try to do that? Helping God, you can be helping God when you're just figuring out how he's going to do it. Yes. I'll tell you, I'll save you a lot of heartache. 
I've tried that many times, and I've learned this. Every time I figure out some way God's going to do it, I just eliminated one, eliminated one way He's going to use. Because He's not going to do it the way I thought of, just so I'll know He did it, and it wasn't how smart I was. And so at one point, Abraham and Sarah realized this isn't happening fast enough, so you can tell they don't believe it's going to happen. So they come up with a scheme. She gives her his her hand servant or maidservant, and it was a custom in those days, so it wasn't that shocking, although it's still wrong. She gave him her, Hagar, his, and he, and to, to treat her as if he was his wife, and she produces a son. His name's Ishmael. And they bring Ishmael to God and say, see? And God says, it's going to be one way and only one way. See, what that was is God made a promise, and they took his promise as a statement of his desire. Listen carefully. God made a promise, and they took that as a statement of his desire, so they figured out a way to meet what God desired, but with their own efforts. No, God said, it's going to be based on my, you believing my promise. I'm going to do it, or it's not going to happen. And the only way I can do it is if you believe my promise. We don't have the time to go there, but if you go back and read through Galatians, I think it's starting around chapter 4, it talks about two covenants. There's a covenant that God made with Israel through, through uh, Isaac because Abraham believed the promise and a covenant and the, and the, and the, which was the, the faith in God's promise. And then the other way life was produced was by the, the works of their own flesh and God compares that to the law, which is relies on the works of our flesh, and Isaac to the faith that comes through Christ, and that's the, because Abraham had to believe God. At some point, we'll go back and look at that, because it's a very interesting study that makes this point so clear, at least to me, that it's, God was saying, either you tr- do this based on trusting my word, or you don't do it. And that's where God is today. And so, that's the promise he made to him. All right. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom you believe, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believe, so that he might become the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he considered not his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that what he God had promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, in these scriptures are the basic elements of faith. There's one that's not in here. We're going to look at this that tonight. But the first one, if you'd put that slide up, elements of faith, is it up there? Locate the promise that God has made. We've already talked about that. Because faith is taking God's promise, God at His word, you ought to be able to identify what word you're taking Him at His promise at. That's not expressed well, but what word are you trusting in? So it's not just, I believe in God, it's what promise are you holding Him accountable for? So as it is written, so... Abraham knew what the promise was, and we went back and looked at that promise. We saw it in in Genesis 15, and we saw it repeated again in Genesis 17. Now put the next one up. As is written, a father of many nations have a major in the sight of him whom he believed. 
So the second thing is you need, it's not enough to know the promise, you've got to know who made the promise. Because the promise is only good as the one who made it. And we talked a lot about that last week because the one who made the promise may be a liar. Some of you know people that have made promises to you and they didn't keep them because when they made them, they didn't intend to keep them. That's called lying. On the other hand, there are people that intend to keep them but just weren't able to. And so they, they wanted to, but they just couldn't. But you still end up in the same place. You don't get the promise. Although they made it, they didn't keep it. So you need to know who made the promise. And we spent time looking at the one who made the promise, and it's God, to whom nothing is impossible. And in fact, in these verses, what it tells you Abraham knew about the one who made the, God, who made the promise is this God who made the promise to him is able to raise the dead. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? But beyond that, he can call things into existence that never existed before. So what is your problem to God? What is that sickness to God? Is it hard to him? I remember being in a prayer line once and, you know, we were seeing tremendous miracles take place. Saw limbs growing out. I saw a broken foot healed. And then the next person in line had cancer, and you could just feel everybody stranding to try to help God because this was going to be more difficult. The cancer was going to be more difficult than a broken foot because we think in our terms, not God's terms. Nothing is even hard for God. Hard is not in His vocabulary unless He's talking about our heads. But hard when it's talking about Him they don't fit in the same sentence because he created the universe by simply saying, let there be. So what's your situation to him? And Abraham knew God that way, so he had confidence that the promise would come about. Okay, so we've looked at that. Now we're going to go on and look at the next element. We looked at the next one we looked at before, put the next one up. After you know the promise and you know the one who made the promise, now you have a choice to make. You have to choose to believe the promise before you see it. In hope against hope, he believed in order they might become. And that's what we talked about last week. The order is you believe first and then you become. You believe and then you receive. Jesus talks about this when he's teaching his disciples these same principles in Mark 11, 22, 23, and 24. Starts out in verse 22 by saying, have faith in God. That's point number two. Know who's made the promise. Have faith in God. Therefore I say unto you, uh, uh, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be, the mountain represents the problem, be thou taken up and cast in the sea and shall not doubt in his heart. But we see, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But believe that what he said shall come to pass. He shall have what he says, therefore, verse 24, I say unto you, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, when you ask, believe that you have received. So when do we believe we received? When we asked. And when do we receive? After we believed. Then you shall have. So the order is not see and believe. The order is believe and then receive. And then we talked last week that's an act of your will. Believing is not an emotion. It's a choice. Otherwise, God would not be fair to hold us responsible for it. Because how are we saved? 
We're saved by putting our faith or believing that Jesus died for our sins. If that was something we had no control over, then we could not be, that could not be the standard by which we either go to heaven or hell because that wouldn't be fair. We would have no, no part in that decision. But it's our choice whether we believe it or not. It's our choice whether we believe it or not. I was talking with somebody the other day on the phone about, you know, relative, and they said, well, you know, they don't want to come to church because they think Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Well, there may be some that are, but we're not all hypocrites. That's not why they don't come to church. They're, they're lying. They're fooling themselves. It's because they don't want to come. They made a choice to not come and face the truth. <clears throat> and they don't want to even face the truth about why they're not coming. Romans 1 talks a lot about when you deny the truth, what happens to you. So anyway, we won't stay there. So the next point was you've got you've to uh, believe the promise before you see it. You've got to believe the promise, and that's a choice. That's an act of your will. All right, now let's go to the next slide. Those are all in there. The next one, I, I, I didn't see it in there. It's, it may be implicit, but it's, you must act on what you believe. Now, did they show? Okay. I couldn't figure this out, although it's come up one at a time, so pretend only the first line's there. Don't look at the other two. All right? Well, I don't want you getting ahead of me. All right? There are just two ways, and we'll, we'll talk about those. But the next thing is you must act on what you believe. You must act on what you believe. Now, go with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 1, verse 22 says... That don't, that, therefore, do not be a hearers of the word, but don't be doers of the word, but not hearers only. Because if somebody only hears the word and doesn't act on it, they deceive themselves. But chapter 2 says something even more powerful for what we're talking about. James chapter 2. We'll start in verse... 14. Now, James is talking about a particular issue, but the principle is the same. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says to you he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Well, the answer, of course, is yes, but he's going to go on and explain something else. If a brother or sister is naked, has no clothes, and they're destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, in other words, be in peace, be warmed and be filled. In other words, in our days, we'd say, be blessed. So you've got somebody standing with you. They've got hardly any clothes on, and they're starving, and we just say, be blessed. God loves you. Be blessed. Now, what's he gonna, look what he says about that. And one of you says, depart in peace, be warmed, be filled, but you don't give him the things which are needed for his body. What does that profit? What good does that do? He's using that as an example. He's not saying we should do that, although obviously we should. This is his point, verse 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Now, Martin Luther did not believe that the book of James should be in the Bible because he was the one that discovered again the doctrine of we're saved by faith in Christ. Because up until Martin Luther... The church, the, and that's the 
the official Catholic Church, had, had gotten to the point where it was all based on works and even gotten beyond that. It was indulgences. You could buy your way into heaven. All that, all that system. And Martin Luther, simply sitting there reading his Bible one day, discovered that we're saved by faith in Christ alone and not by our works. So having had that revelation, he had trouble understanding why this was in there. But it's in there for balance. There's no question that we're saved by faith. We've gone over this so many times before. The book of Romans, the book of Galatians, and most of the book of Hebrews is to establish that once and for all and forever. But what James is saying is if I say I have faith in Christ and there's no change in my life at any point, then I begin to wonder whether I really had faith in Christ. That's like marrying my wife and telling her on that beautiful Saturday afternoon, I love you, I do, and that's the last time I ever say it to her. That's the last time I really talk to her. I don't spend much time with her. And I may send her my tithes. I mean, I may send her, you know, provide for her. But, but I don't ever relate to her. I don't ever, you know, I don't ever respond to any of her needs. We just exist together. She could really begin to question whether I meant what I said when I say I love you in the beginning. Why? Because there's no evidence in my life to show that what I said I believed was true. The point here is when you believe something, you'll begin to act in accordance with what you believe. Good example. All of you have exercised that tonight. You all believed that the blue chair you're sitting in would hold you. How do I know what you believed? Because you acted on it. You ever driven through a McDonald's drive-in or a Burger King drive-in? That's one of the greatest acts of faith there is. You're talking into a box. You don't know if there's a live person in there. You're talking into a box. Tell them what you want. You made your, you gave, you prayed, right? You offered up your petition. They told you what it was going to cost. They told you to go to the next window. There's some smiling teenager there. The window goes, opens. They put their hand out. You hand them your 1250. They say, thank you very much. Go to the next window. The window closes. They got your money. What do you do? You drive to the next window. Why? Because you believe your Big Mac, French fries, and large Coke, and whatever else is going to be there. How do they know you believe it? By what you did. So the point is, when you believe something, you will begin to act as if you believed it. Now notice why that's so important here. We're going to spend tonight on this because it's important to understand. Look at what he goes on to say, verse 17. Thus, or in the same way, faith by itself, in other words, just believing something, if it does not have some corresponding action, is dead or useless. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there's one God. You do well. Look at this. Even the demons believe in God and tremble. That puts them ahead of most Christians. They have a fear of the Lord. 
The demons do. Satan believes in God. Does that shock you? But guess where he spent the eternity? In hell. His demonic forces, which used to be angels that are fallen, they believe in God. But guess where they're spending eternity? Because what they believed in didn't change what they did. So believing is important, but it's not enough. Verse 20. Do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Some translations, and I think it's better, say useless. Now here's the example. Was not Abraham our father, father in the faith, justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now stop a second. Wait a minute. We just read in Romans chapter 4 where Paul is using Abraham as an example of what faith is to show that we're saved by faith in Christ alone. And James is saying, don't you know Abraham was saved by his works? What's wrong here? Well, let me teach you a principle. When I was first saved and then when I first went to Bible school, I had a real struggle. You know, I'd go and i hear what they'd say. i go home, i look it up in my Bible. Then i look for other things to see if anything contradicted it. And sometimes I'd find things like these things that didn't seem to line up. And then i get in this big tizzy about it. And it was, I mean, I was struggling. And I was, we were finally, I think it was two or three months into Bible school. And I finally, I had to get, a, I said, I got alone with God. I said, I got a problem here. I said, it'd be one thing I was still sitting back in my law office, struggling theologically with this. But I resigned my law practice picked up my family, moved halfway across the country, and enrolled in Bible school because I believe this is the truth, and now I'm having these struggles with it. I've got to find out how to... I can't go on like this. So you ask God a really heartfelt question, He'll give you an honest answer and give it right away. And His answer was hit me so clearly. I knew what he, He said, the problem, John, is you're reading that book like a lawyer. And I knew immediately what He meant. My training as a lawyer was to take any document and read it to find out what was wrong with it. If it was one I drafted, I, I read it to find out if there was any loopholes, anything in it that was, where there was a hole where something didn't, wasn't covered. If I read some document somebody else prepared, I read it critically to see what could be wrong with it. That's how I was trained. And what God was saying is you brought that mindset over to the Bible. And he says you've got to learn to read it by faith not like a lawyer. And I knew immediately what he meant. I said, all right, God, from this day on, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to assume everything in here is true and everything fits together unless I get some other evidence that it doesn't. I'm going to assume it fits together. And you know what? how amazing it was? When I changed my mindset, it's amazing how different everything looked. And here's a good example. Before, when I'd run up against this, I'd say, oh, see, the Bible contradicts itself. But see, when you believe it fits together, you'll begin to look to see how it fits together. And here's how it fits together. It's exactly, there are two sides of the same coin. Because what he's saying here, I'm going to, let's go through the story. Turn with me to Genesis 22. Because the principle I want you to see tonight is discovered by resolving these two things. 
Genesis 22 is the story that he's... You might, might want to keep something here because we may come back to that. Genesis, Genesis 22. The story most of us know, but I want to read through it because I want to show you the points here. We're going to start in verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Now at this point, Isaac's probably in his early 20s. He's been born. Abraham believed God. Abraham and Sarah believed God. They finally got to a faith where they were placed where they were in faith. When he was about 100 years old, Sarah, when she's about 99, he conceives, she conceives, that would really be a miracle, she conceives. Nine months later, a little bouncing baby boy is brought forth, and God's fulfilled His promise when they believed Him. Now we're about 20-some years later. Now keep in mind what Abraham had to go through to get straight in his head that God was saying, through this child and this child alone, you're going to become a father of many nations. And now he's got the child. He's now grown up. He's becoming mature. And now God speaks to him in this chapter. And says, Abraham, Abraham, he says, here I am. Verse 2, he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall tell you. A burnt offering, when they built an altar of wood, they laid the animal on it, they would take a knife, drive the knife into his heart, kill it, let the blood flow out, and then set the whole thing on fire. That's what God's telling him to do to this son. I want to ask you this question. Do you see any inconsistency between what God told him in the first place? Through this boy, you're going to become the father of many nations. By the way, Isaac hasn't married and had any children yet. And now he's telling him, I want you to take this boy that I told you to believe me for, and when you believe me, I, produce, I made it real clear, I wanted you to have this son. And now I'm telling you to take him up put him out on a pile of wood, drive a knife in his heart, and then set all of that on fire? You see some inconsistency there? Oh, I just want to make sure we're on the same page here. Okay, all right. But notice what Abraham does. Notice, or notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't question God. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't say, uh, wait a minute, maybe it was the pizza I ate? He doesn't say, one of these is the devil, and I know which one it is. Get behind me, Satan. This is my boy. I'm not taking him there. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning. I don't think I would have gotten early, up early that morning. He rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Look at verse 5. And Abraham said to the young man, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder. See, he was a southerner. And we will worship. And we will come back to you. Notice what he said. God said, take him to this mountain that I show you 
When you get there, you're going to drive a knife into his heart, set him on fire. God didn't say anything about what was going to happen after that. But God had also said, through this son, you're going to be the father of many nations. And God never took that back. Abraham remembers that promise. And now this same God is telling him to do something which is exactly opposite to what he's promised. In fact, it looks like if he obeys God, what God promised can't possibly happen. But see, Abraham leaves that issue to God. He leaves how this is going to turn out to God. He just trusts God and obeys God. Okay. So one of the evidences of what he believes here, evidence of what he believes here, is what he says to the servants. He says, you stay here. The lad and I are going to go over there and we're going to worship. And he said to the men, and we, the lad and I, will come back. Now that's not what God said was going to happen. God didn't say anything about whether he was coming back or not. He just didn't address the issue. All God said is, here's what I want you to do. Take him to that mountain, run a knife into his heart, and set him on fire. And that's what a sacrifice, burnt offering means. But we're getting some indication of what Abraham believed in his heart. Verse 6, So Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac his son, and took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two went on together. Verse 7, But Isaac, who's been looking around and taking inventory here, said to Abraham his father, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, oh, Look, I see the fire. I see the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse 8, look what Abraham said. Second words out of his mouth. My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them went on together. In the Hebrew, what it literally says is God will provide himself. In other words, he said, God is going to take care of it. But notice, he said it. He didn't say, oh, God's taken you away from me. Oh, the God that promised this to me, promised you to me. He's now changed his mind. I can't trust this God because he's taking you away from me. That's probably what we'd say. I'm going to do it, but I don't want to do it. He's left the whole issue God. And how do we know to what level he trusts God? By what he does. Not just by what he says. But we also know what he believes in the end by the things that he says. And see, that's one of the ways that you can act on it is by speaking what the word says in spite of what things look like. It didn't look good for Isaac. It didn't look good for Abraham. It looked as if they were going to come back without Isaac and he was going to have to explain to Sarah, you know, we believe God for this and now this has all happened. I don't know what's going to happen here. He didn't believe that was going to happen. I'm going to show you what he believed was going to happen. Well, let's go on. Verse 9, Then they came to the place which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there, placed the wood on it in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar. You know, I've read this before and realized Isaac had some faith too. This is not a three-year-old boy. He laid him on the altar upon the wood, and Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. 
Now he's got the knife up, an arm ready to come down. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abram, Abram, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear or reverence God, since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And so Abraham went and took the ram and offered it for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh, as it it is said today, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided for him. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and the sandwiches on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of the heavens. Enemies. Now, if you go back and look in... Genesis 15, he made the same promise back there. But now this promise is sealed. Now, we've just seen evidence of what Abraham believed. Because Abraham says, the boy and I are going to come back. Abraham, when Isaac asked him, he says, God will provide himself. So what must have been happening is, Abraham and Isaac are coming up one side of the mountain. There's a ram making its way up the other side of the mountain. God's provision was already there. He just couldn't see it. But he didn't need to see it because he trusted in the God who'd made the promise. Now turn with me to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. This, is, of course, is the Hall of Fame of Faith. It's talking about different examples of faith. It's already talked about Abraham before. In verse 7, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. So he offered him up by faith. Faith in what? And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Stop there a second. So Abraham, when God speaks to him, still remembers that first point, that promise that God had made. He, even though he's seen the son, he hasn't seen the full fulfillment of the promise because God's promise was, through this son, you will be the father of many nations. So he's got the first step here, but he doesn't have the whole fulfillment. Now God's told him to do something that if he does it, looks like it's going to destroy every chance of it being fulfilled. That is a temptation for Abraham to take this back into his own understanding. And Abraham chooses not to do that. And we're going to see the result of that. See, sometimes when you're standing on God's word, you'll start to see it come to pass. And that's when you're the most vulnerable. I've had people standing, trusting God for, for a, a condition in their body. And I, they're going to say, we're going to go for the test now. And I say, praise God, we'll agree that you're healed. We agree that you're going to have a good report. But whether you get a good report or not, it doesn't change what God's Word says. God's Word says Jesus bore your sicknesses and carried your diseases, whether you get a good report or not. And they come back and they say, Pastor, I got a good report. Things are getting better. And here's what they do. They now take their faith off of God's word and move their faith over to what the doctor said. And it's so subtly easy to do. 
because it's easier to believe what the doctor is saying when you like the results than what God's Word is saying because you can see the report and you have more confidence in the doctors. And here was a similar example of that. It was on the process of the full fulfillment. The first phase was accomplished, and now God said, give that phase back to me. I want to, I want to increase your faith. Give it back to me. And Abraham obeyed God, and here's why. Because he did not believe he was going to lose Isaac. Because here it says, his eyes were on what God had promised, that through Isaac you will be the father of men. He never took his eyes off that promise. He never took his eyes off that promise, even when God said, offer that son up. Because look what it says here. This is so good. So good. So good. Verse 18, of whom it was said, this was the promise, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Look at verse 19. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him back in a figurative sense. In other words, here's what Abraham's going through. And it says that in Romans, remember we saw in the beginning, in Romans 4, it says, the, the, it, back in the first principle, you understand what the promise of God is, then know who the one is that made the promise. And we looked back in Romans chapter 4 and saw that Abraham understood that the one that made the promise is able to raise the dead. So here Abraham's thinking was, I do, I'm not dumb. He wasn't stupid. He realized the apparent inconsistency. But his faith was in the first promise. And his attitude is, I don't care what God's got to do. Even if he's got to raise him from the dead, he said, through this boy, I'm going to be the father of many nations. So whatever happens between when God makes the promise and when it's fully fulfilled, I don't care. That's God's business. I just know that's what's going to happen. And the evidence of what he, that he believed that is he acted on it. He never lost his peace. When we lose our peace, that's evidence that we've gone into unbelief. Because why should we not have peace when we know God's going to take care of it and He's well able? Now go back with me to James chapter 2. Verse 21 again. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Verse 22. Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by his works his faith was made perfect. That word means complete. What happens when you believe a promise because you choose to before you see the results and then you begin to act as if that promise is true? What happens is you complete your faith because until you act on it, faith is just something that's going on inside of you. But when you step out of the boat, when you put yourself out in a place where you're now at risk if it doesn't happen, now you solidify your faith because there's no other way out. Because always in the back of our mind is, 
this calculation. What can I do if God, what's my plan B if God doesn't come through? Remember the example I've used? You know, God's told you, you know, go down to the end of the pier, get in the boat. You, you go down to the end of the pier. I'll make sure there's a boat there. Get in the boat and go to the other side. And we're walking down the pier. And, of course, where are our eyes going to be? On the end of the pier to see if there's a boat there. And if there's no boat there, what are we going to do? We're going to slow down because we're going listen, to... Listen to our thinking. We're going to give God more time to get a boat there. Our eyes will start looking over the horizon to see if there's any boat in sight. What are we trying to do? We're trying to help God do His part of it. Aren't we? Because we're not sure He's going to. And then we're not really in faith. So what happens when you start to act on it is what happens is you're now making a commitment that you're standing on what God said and not on your own understanding. And of course, the greatest example of fight from what Jesus did, the greatest example in the New Testament is Peter walking on the water. And you've seen, I've gone through this exercise before. I'm not going to do it tonight. We don't have time. But there had to be a moment in time when Peter's sitting on the gunnels on the side of the boat with his feet over the water, and, but he's still not in faith. He's still not in faith. He may believe it's going to happen, but the point he gets in faith is when he steps out on the word come. Because that's when he now solidifies, he releases the power of what he's believed. And it becomes a, a reality in his life. It's no longer potential, it's now a reality. You have to release your faith in order for it to work. And the way you release it is by acting as if it's so. And one way to do it is what you say, and we're going to talk about that next week. But you see here the example of Abraham did that twice in the story in Genesis 22. He spoke what was going to happen when there was no evidence that that was going to happen. Why? Because it had to happen to fulfill the promise God had made in the beginning that through this boy, you're going to be the father of many nations. So Abraham's belief, we see here from, we saw in Hebrews 11, is that even if he's got a raising from the dead, that's what God's going to do. Because all I know is God made clear, through this boy, you're going to be the father of many nations. How he does it is his business. My job is to believe him and to act as if that's so. So the way we can release that faith and make it become crystallized or have power in your life is to begin to act as if it's so. And one way you can do that is by the words we say, and we'll talk about that next week.